Welcome to the Ag Emerge podcast brought to you by Ag Solutions Network. We're here to move the ag paradigm forward by helping you regenerate your soils using new ideas, research, and emerging technologies. Get ready to improve your soil, your crops, your livestock, and your family's livelihood. I'm Kim Sheese. And I'm Monty Bottens. And we're your hosts. Thanks for joining us. Today, we welcome Dr. Wayne Honeycutt to the Ag Emerge podcast. Dr. Honeycutt is the president and CEO of the Soil Health Institute, where he leads the Institute's programs to safeguard and enhance the vitality and productivity of soils. Among his wealth of experience, Dr. Honeycutt has served as the deputy chief for science and technology with the USDA NRCS in Washington, D.C., and as a research soil scientist with the USDA ARS, just to name a few. His experience in research in the field of soil health is extensive, and I encourage you to check out his full bio on the Soil Health Institute website to really appreciate all the work he's done. We'd also like our listeners to know that this podcast was recorded shortly prior to the events of COVID-19 in the U.S., Our discussion with Dr. Honeycutt focuses on soil health and resources for building soil health. And we recognize the efforts across the agricultural landscape to continue to produce nutritious food for our country and the world, especially during this difficult and unprecedented time. So thanks for listening. Well, welcome, Dr. Honeycutt, to the Ag Emerge podcast. You know, I've had the pleasure of hearing you speak several times as you facilitate the annual soil health meetings each year. And I've had the opportunity, too, to just gain a wealth of knowledge from those meetings as you bring together um, leaders in the soil health movement. I also know that you've really had a lifelong commitment to the soil health movement and everything that involves soil health. So we'd just love to hear from you and have you tell our listeners some of your journey. Absolutely. Well, first of all, thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. And yeah, you know, I gained uh, an interest in soils at at an early age. I was very, very fortunate. My father, even though he was a musician and a high school band director, he always had an interest in farming. And so just when I was a kid, uh, he bought uh, 120 acres a few miles outside of my uh, small town where I grew up in uh, Glasgow, Kentucky, south central part of Kentucky, and uh, and started uh, trying to learn to farm it. And uh, as I grew older, I was at his side working with him. And then as I got more of a teenager, I started uh, going in partnership with him, essentially, and growing tobacco and corn, gardens. Uh, I had some grove of Christmas trees and things like that. And so that's really where, I don't know, I guess I kind of learned uh, an appreciation uh, for what it takes uh, to farm uh, and also kind of a connection to the land that I think so many farmers and ranchers have where it really, you know, when when you work that piece of ground, how it really kind of becomes part of you. And um, and so I experienced that. And uh, so I was pretty much... Uh, dictated or mandated that I would go to college. <laughs> and uh, and so when I went off to college, uh, I started taking some soils courses in addition to my uh, forestry courses at the time. And, and one thing just kind of led to another um, uh, with uh, continuing to pursue um, more in the kind of that academic realm, I guess, with a master's degree in soils and, and uh, then eventually a PhD in soils. And so um, that really kind of opened up the door uh, to a, a lot of opportunities. Um, I, for some 25 years, I was a research soil scientist uh, for USDA's Agricultural Research Service, and uh, mostly doing work on uh, carbon and nitrogen and phosphorus cycling and sustainable cropping systems development, where where we looked at not just from the soil perspective, but also looked at the economics and the effects on plant diseases and how the plants were growing and, and all types of things, uh, how water movement you know, was occurring in the soil uh, based on our management practices. And uh, so through that experience, I, I learned just the value of improving the health of the soils. We, we had one particular project 
where we doubled the yield of potatoes by either improving soil or by irrigating. And uh, once we improved the soil, we got no additional yield benefit from irrigation. Now this was in the cool, humid northeast uh, part of the U.S. It doesn't mean that would be the same, uh, you know, results elsewhere in a more arid, you know, a hotter region of the country. But that was the experience that we observed and uh, and measured. And so that just really, really kind of convinced me the importance of soil health. And so I eventually I had an opportunity to serve as the um, deputy chief of, for science and technology with USDA's Natural Resource Conservation Service in Washington, D.C., and there I was in charge of most of their uh, science and technology programs around the country, in addition to a number of other things. And um, and as one of the things that was fortunate to have the opportunity to do there was to stand up their soil health division, uh, which is to really kind of give that additional emphasis uh, to the NRCS programs uh, for driving adoption of soil health, so that's kind of a kind of a long-winded, I guess, answer to your question uh, of kind of how that kind of that common thread for me really kind of started with working with the ground alongside my father and small farm in Kentucky, and uh, but eventually, you know, kind of uh, making its way more uh, at a national and and right now kind of at a continental scale. Yes. Well, that's excellent, uh, Wayne, and we talked a little bit ahead of time, but, you know, Kentucky, many people may not know this, but, you know, early on, Kentucky was really a pioneer in no-till, which is one component of, of healthy soil, you know, when, it, when it, you can do it and it makes management sense and those kind of things. But you told me that uh, you had uh, bumped into or ran across Dr. Lloyd Murdoch's work there at um, University yes. of Kentucky. and. And you, you got voluntold for some sampling, too. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Uh, I was working on my master's there at the University of Kentucky in soils under another one of the no-till pioneers, a guy named Dr. Bob Blevins. And, um, and they had some uh, plots out at the University of Kentucky Spindletop Farm just outside of Lexington. And, um, and so I was the one that went out and sampled some of those soils. When those no-till plots, those long-term plots, had just turned five years old. And uh, that was a similar type of work to what Lloyd Murdoch was doing. Uh, they were working hand in hand on the collaboration between that western part of the state, uh, their uh, research site that where Lloyd was stationed, and that uh, more north central part of the state where Dr. Blevins uh, was. And so they were collaborating very closely on that. But yeah, I got out there and uh, sampled those particular soils. and. Yeah, I tell you, it's uh, it was just it was I had a wonderful experience just uh, in 2019, uh, where one of the projects we're leading with the Soil Health Institute that I'll probably get the chance to tell you a little bit more about in a couple minutes, um, but it involves uh, looking at all these different long-term research sites across North America, and uh, so it was a great opportunity for me to have one of our scientists go to those same plots. Uh, that had now turned, I guess, 40 uh, or 45 years old, uh, then had him sample those uh, same plots that I sampled when they had turned five years old. And so uh, it's amazing some of the differences that he saw and he showed us pictures of. And uh, But it's just kind of a, I don't know, very, I guess, uh, heartwarming for me uh, to be able to know exactly where he was and what those soils were like and and to be able to visit them uh, again, kind of, a, if nothing else, uh, in uh, homage and, and honoring uh, Dr. Blevins and Dr. Murdoch, and Dr. Phillips, Dr. Fry, uh, all those that really even initiated that pioneering research back in the 1970s. It really was amazing what all came out of out of University of Kentucky and, and the various farmers and pioneers, you know, the very first no-till field was in Kentucky and, you know, Howard Martin, Gene Keaton, and a lot of other entrepreneurs, you know, came from Kentucky that really aided the no-till movement. So it's interesting. Like you said, I, I've done that before where farmers that I've worked with and you start out there and it's early on and you kind of see the soil conditions and then you know, you go away for a period of time and you're doing the right things and you come back five, 10, 15 years later and you see that change. It's just, it's amazing to see that. 
And uh, yeah. I bet you spent a little extra time on that plot compared to the others when you're reviewing the data. Just, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Exactly right. And yeah, I, I've got to tell you that one of my experiences was uh, doing research years ago where we were working to improve the soil health. And um, our, our field technician came to me one day and he said, you know, it's taking me longer and longer to work our way through this study you know, in planting operations and stuff like this. And I said, well, how come? He said, well, I have to get out and adjust the planter every time I get to those soil health improving plots. And he said, he said the implement just sinks right down in it because the soil's so loose and friable. I said, oh, really? And so I, I made sure we got plenty of measurements of that. <laughs> Terrible problem to have. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> My theory is soil is either improving or degrading. You know, it's rarely static. And uh, mm. it's a boy, it's just a direct result of our management practices that, you know, outside influences have some things, but reality is, is we're, we're responsible on a management basis to adjusting to those outside influences, whether it be weather or crop types or, or those kind of things. But yeah, it's yeah. interesting just to see how, you know, continuous good management can continually improve or we can continually ignore and, and maybe not improve or degrade. So yeah, well, that, that I, leads, I, go ahead. Well, I was just saying, I, I completely agree with you. Uh, you know, I think one of our, our challenges um, that we are trying to address at the Institute, and I suspect we'll get into this, is uh, we may not know that we're having that degradation going on if, if we don't have the appropriate uh, measurements, if we're not able to give our farmers and ranchers the appropriate measurements to know how well they are doing. And so that's one of the things we're trying to change. Well, here we go. We're just going to go ahead and take the next 45 minutes. Uh, we're going to shut off our mics and let you tell us what soil health is about. No, I'm just joking, Wayne. Um, but ultimately, my, you know, Soil Health Institute, I've had an opportunity to participate in, in the conference. And also I work with the Soil Health Partnership, which is an associate member of the Soil Health Institute. And um, I have a plot on my own farm. But uh, really the definition of soil health, right? There's the... Uh, there's the big question, and I think the Soil Health Institute, uh, from my perspective, and, and I could be oversimplifying this, and I'm, I'm sure I am, but really is, was created to put a definition to soil health, and both from a, you know, a research standpoint, a practitioner standpoint, and from what the, the consumer wants, even with all the consumer partnerships. But, you know, please give us an overview of, of Soil Health Institute and all the fantastic, outstanding work you're doing there, Dr. Honeycutt. Absolutely. Yeah, I guess I would first start off with kind of response to that is, I think we kind of do have a definition, but uh, it's, it does sound a bit academic. It's defined as the continued capacity of a soil to function as a viable living ecosystem that sustains plants, animals, and humans. And those functions that we're talking about in, those definition, in that definition are things like providing water, providing nutrients, uh, suppressing plant pathogens, you know, disease-borne organisms, those types of things. So we kind of have a definition, but you are exactly right in that where we um, have problems is, uh, is really kind of knowing how to measure it. And, uh, and then how to interpret those measures. And, and I would say that, uh, you know, soil health is a, it's a holistic concept, much like human health is a holistic concept. Uh, like when you uh, go to the doctor, you don't just want your blood pressure measured, uh, but there's many other things that they want to measure. And it also is kind of a, depends on, you know, whether you're 16 or whether you're 60, um, what those health expectations are. And it's the same way with soils. There's, it's a holistic concept. There's chemical, physical, and biological measures. And uh, so you need to understand the interplay of all those and measure many different things. And then some soils are more highly weathered than others. And so your expectations for how healthy that soil might get uh, would be different from one soil to the next. So there are those uh, kind of concepts, I guess, uh, that I would offer. Now, getting back to your kind of your question about, you know, the Institute, um, we are a nonprofit. Uh, we were stood up by the Noble Foundation out of Oklahoma back in 2015. And with a mission of safeguarding and enhancing vitality and productivity of soils through both research and adoption. 
So we work kind of the full gamut from the research uh, to the adoption phase. And uh, so that's kind of what we're all about. Um, we, we take a real kind of comprehensive strategy for advancing soil health. Um, we basically take the approach that there has been, uh, gladly uh, enough, uh, a sufficient amount of research that's been conducted that gives us the confidence that we need to know that if we improve soil health, uh, we are not only doing what's good for farmers by building like things like drought resilience, yield stability, um, but that we're also benefiting the environment. Uh, we can reduce nutrient losses to our waterways and reduce greenhouse gas emissions and increase carbon being sequestered in the soil. And so that takes us down the path to saying, okay, well, our goal now then is adoption because it's our farmers and ranchers that are going to allow us to achieve all these benefits uh, at scale, these like these environmental benefits for the rest of society. It's our it's our land managers, our farmers and ranchers that are going to do that. And so our central question that we work on at the Institute is, OK, if adoption is our is our goal, then what type of information does a producer need to know? when they decide whether or not to adopt those practices. And so the first thing they tell us that they really need is the business case. You know, is it going to be profitable? Is it going to increase or reduce their economic risk? And so we have a project where we are currently um, interviewing 125 different farmers uh, that are adopting these practices uh, to be able to come back to other farmers and tell them what these 125, what their experiences have been uh, with the profitability of these systems. And then another aspect that, that the farmers kind of really need to know is how you measure it. Uh, I mentioned that a while ago. And uh, it's kind of unfair for us to ask them to manage something if we don't tell them how to measure it, measure their progress. And so we have a project where we are evaluating over 30 different soil health measures at 124 long-term research sites in the US, Canada, and Mexico. And so these are sites where they have the appropriate experimental design, much like people like Lloyd Murdoch and Bob Levins were using on those no-till plots in Kentucky, that will then allow us to come to the appropriate statistical conclusion on how effective each of these measurements is. And uh, so uh, we are doing that in collaboration with many different partners. And then we have, and then farmers, even though, you know, they need to know the business case and they need to understand the measurements, they also, in many cases, need some assistance with some training, some educational opportunities to help them develop a, a, a soil management plan that works for them and their farm. Mm. So we are we're working on that too. I'm sorry. Go ahead, please. No, that's excellent. And like you said, there definitely has to be you know an economic case and and that this is going to work and it's not going to be a a wreck for people and those kind of things. But um, ultimately, what are some of the things that you see drive that that change of um, stewardship at the farm level in in your experience or your organization's experience? Yeah. We are seeing um, a couple of things. Uh, one in particular is the economics. We, we see that as, as a big driver. And one of the, that's one of the big opportunities we feel like we have is that, uh, of course, there's different aspects of economics. There's the profitability issue, but then there's a reduction in that economic risk. And uh, as I said, we are uh, assessing that profitability issue with 100, interviewing 125 farmers uh, right now across the US. But the economic risk in particular, when we build um, the organic matter in the soil, we can enhance what's called the available water holding capacity. That's the water in the soil that is available to plants, to plant roots. And um, so what that can essentially do is reduce risk to things like drought. Uh, and so it can achieve greater you know, yield stability. Uh, another thing that we're doing when we're enhancing soil health, in many cases, we're enhancing the availability of nutrients in that soil. 
because we're building up organic matter, or it's usually effectively, most effectively measured as carbon. And that uh, carbon is tied to things like nitrogen and phosphorus. And uh, so when you have the microbial activity in the soil uh, basically breaking down that carbon, it's releasing things like nitrogen and phosphorus that the plants can take up. And so that's another way that it's really beneficial for farmers is that um, you can enhance nutrient cycling in your soil. And so you don't have to perhaps uh, purchase as many fertilizers. Um, there are not in all cases, but in some cases. And uh, things like cover crops for building soil health too. Those, you know, those, those are crops of course grown in between the main cash crop. But let's say for example, there's excess you know, fertilizer nutrients in your soil. Uh, over the winter and the spring, as rains and snow melts, you know, come, um, those nutrients can be washed out. But things like cover crops growing, now their root systems can pick those up and essentially recycle them back to the surface or keep them in the surface soil. So that's another way that, you know, you can uh, minimize the amount of purchased inputs that you have that directly benefits uh, the economics. So that economic uh, picture is really central uh, for um, for farmers uh, because, you know, we recognize they're businessmen and women. They, they need to stay in business. And uh, so that's a real central part uh, of adoption. And then there is another kind of a, kind of a, I guess, a old kind of social component. Uh, there are those that are doing it because they see uh, the environmental benefits and they also want to really help contribute, you know, to those uh, environmental benefits. I find that really interesting what you're talking about in regards to the, the resilience aspect in, in weather extremes, whether it be drought or 2019 um, for most of the area where we were excessively yeah. wet. And the current method today and you know, I'll, we'll probably jump back to the research and, and economics and those kind of things later, but I just have to go here right now in regards to the insurance is the method that we're using today for providing resilience. You know, so if we do have a, a crop failure, we're relying on our, you know, our APH and, and purchasing crop insurance to replace a certain percentage of our actual production history. And, um, so that's how we're we're creating that resilience. Now, if we focus on soil health and improve uh, water infiltration, uh, water like uh, plant available water holding capacity, and reduce erosion, so we're reducing offsite um, nutrient movement and those kind of things, we've essentially de-risked the farm. But guess what? My insurance cost is much per acre or per bushel guarantee as what my neighbors does that might be, you know, plowing and doing all the conventional stuff. You know, there's a, that's a more of a policy type of thing um, where we're, we're not really, we're unintentionally rewarding the wrong thing through policy. And I know Soil Health Institute has some, has some things there. And, and you want to speak to that a little bit, Wayne, as far as how we currently do things and, and how they could be better to help address soil health uh, initiatives. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I think you teed it up very, very nicely, Monty, uh, kind of talking about the way we things are currently uh, done. And I would say we think that what we have is another great opportunity here in that um, we do believe that we can enhance a yield stability. Uh, you know, there are plenty of, of of kind of, I guess, anecdotal cases, you know, given observation or given farmer, you know, that says, you know, between his or her uh, neighbor's farm and his or her farm, he's, he has seen that um, during drought periods, his yields are much higher if he's working to improve soil health compared to a neighbor. And we think that we need to collect more of that data uh, on that, you know, it's kind of more observational on farms. We need to do it uh, where we're doing on-farm research and, and documenting it. Uh, and because we do feel like that there is that opportunity. We believe uh, that uh, if a farmer demonstrates that he or she is a lower risk because of these soil health practices that they are using, 
then they should be rewarded with a lower uh, insurance premium, uh, that they sh perhaps should be rewarded with a lower interest rate when they go to the bank to, you know, to take out a loan to buy seed and fertilizer and things like that. And uh, so I, I'll put it this way, I completely understand uh, like the USDA programs that they need because they are using public, you know, taxpayers dollars uh, for administering their programs, they need to be really sure, as sure as they can be, that their tables, their actuarial tables are very, very sound. Uh, and so even though there are people coming along saying, you know, hey, we are reducing risk because we're employing these practices, it's appropriate because they're using our hard-earned taxpayer dollars for them to do that check and say, let me see the data and let's, let's make sure it's really there uh, before they make that change. And so there are a number of efforts now uh, that have kind of uh, clued into this uh, opportunity and that are working uh, to help quantify uh, those benefits and uh, see if we really can put some numbers to it uh, for, uh, for documenting those reductions in risk that these soil health practices uh, can afford, uh, can bring you know, to the table for farmers and ranchers, and uh, so that hopefully we can uh, then take that next step and let those uh, insurance programs and uh, loan programs uh, really kind of accommodate uh, and essentially reward farmers that are using those practices. And what's really cool about that too is it can be that additional incentive for getting more and more adoption of these practices that are not only good for the farmer, but that are good for the environment. And so it can really um, be a key for helping us address a lot of our water quality problems and our greenhouse gas emission problems and, and those things too. So it's just a, it's, it really has that opportunity for being a wonderful win-win situation where, um, where you're rewarding people for um, these good benefits uh, that can just lead to more and more benefits. So the research you're providing at Soil Health Institute is a way to provide those actuarial activities, as you as you mentioned, as an example or a way to think of it, uh, to yes. NRCS or right. FSA or or um, oh shoot, whatever the, the uh, RMA RMA. Management. Thank you. I knew it was one yeah, of those yeah. TLAs. You know. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. But. Uh, yeah, RMA needs to be able to quantify that. You know, recently here in Illinois, we had a very limited amount. It came from the state, uh, $5 an acre uh, credit on uh, cover cropping, you know. So there is some movement for that, but it's just, yeah, like you said, we need the um, uh, research and the actuarial tables in order to be able to consistently deliver that from, from place to place. So that, that is excellent. Yeah, there was a, in the 2018 Farm Bill, uh, there was a clause that directed USDA to uh, work with um, universities and I believe other entities uh, to help provide uh, some of uh, that data to help them make that assessment also. Uh, so there are, uh, that was an effort led uh, by a group called uh, AGREE. Uh, A-G-R-E-E, -E, and um, they're part of the Meridian uh, Institute. Uh, they're uh, officed in D.C., but they work on some of these things, and they bring coalitions of uh, individuals and organizations together to work on some of these topics, and I was one of those uh, folks uh, on that committee. And so there are, there are some people that are, um, you know, kind of working to address that beyond just the Soil Health Institute, and uh, so I think it's, it's a great opportunity. Well, you know, that brings up, a, I think, a good uh, point, too, of what I appreciate about uh, being able to go to the Soil Health Institute website is that, for example, you guys have taken the policies and the farm bill and broken it down, and you have things broken down by state as well. So you give uh, farmers a great opportunity to see what programs are available currently for soil health. Um, that are available to them within their state. So I feel like that's a great resource that folks need to know about if they don't already. Yeah, well, well, thank you. Yeah, you know, that was that was quite a job pulling that together. 
In the sure 2014 was. Farm Bill, I think soil health was mentioned like once or twice in 2018 Farm Bill over 40 times. And we found 60 different provisions in the, in the Farm Bill uh, that uh, impacted soil health. And uh, some of them are uh, quite meaningful. And uh, so um, if, if folks want to look at that on our website, what they'll find is a table where they could, you know, basically click on a link to find more specific information. Uh, and so uh, hopefully that is useful to others. But I think at the state level, it's amazing all the changes that are occurring in the state level. Just in a year period, we went from, I think it was nine different uh, legislative activities in the states to 53 uh, in soil health. And uh, so it's just really, really taken off. That's great. And, uh, you know, one of the things I, I think about too, a lot we've talked about here is is programs related to commodity crops or program crops, if you will. I think the soil health uh, principles and the activities that you're doing still greatly apply to uh, vegetable crops or specialty crops, orchard crops, those kind of things where you don't have a RMA type of activities, or at least they're there, but they're not really readily adopted because you know, if it's too wet, too uh, too wet, and you've got produce in the field, uh, you pick produce, and you know you can make a, a tremendous mess out of it. But if you have better soil health or or have the root structure of of um, uh, cover crops and those kind of things to support the harvest activities, it makes a, a whole nother. Uh, it makes it tremendously better in the harvest. And then one of the things we run into is the food safety aspects. So. You know, on the food safety side, integrating cover crops and residue, you know, when you have third party auditors, if they see one little flake of cotton residue from a previous crop or, you know, a cover crop residues, you know, the field gets quarantined. Uh, so is there movement happening at all in regards to, let, let's say, cover crops with, with produce or specialty crops uh, or in the case of orchards with, you know, uh, cover crop management on the floors and even with the potential for livestock integration and those kind of things. Um, what, what do you see happening in maybe the more non-conventional crops? Yeah, yeah, you know, um, a couple, couple of thoughts on that. And uh, one is I would say that I think that they are really starting to take off. I think they're um, uh, not quite as mature in their kind of development uh, and adoption as uh, what we're seeing in uh, more of the, the commodity crops, as you mentioned, uh, the row crops, uh, but there tremendous opportunity there, as you were really well describing. And what we have seen is that, you know, these, these kind of the soil health uh, planning principles that NRCS advocated of minimizing disturbance, keeping the soil covered, maximizing diversity, um, keep a living root uh, growing, year-round, those same types of principles uh, can be applied in all those types of systems, uh, whether whether it's orchard or in the vegetable production system, those specialty crops, or in our traditional commodity, you know, row crop systems. And so, it, and even in, you know, rangeland systems, <laughs> it's uh, it just kind of takes a, a different, oh, kind of a, I guess, a filter uh, when you're thinking, okay, well, what practices do I have in my toolbox for this type of production system uh, that can help me um, apply those principles? And uh, and so <clears throat> things like, you know, in, in, in an orchard, they may be able to keep, you know, these living roots in between the rows, you know, of the trees and stuff like that, that, that will also benefit the trees. And, and so there are... Um, uh, nuances that can be done for each of those. Um, but again, I think that there's, there may be perhaps not quite as far along, uh, but you know, we're, we're young also in this in, in many respects. One of the things I'd, I'd like to talk about just a little bit there, dive a little deeper into is the silos, you know, that exist within USDA. Uh, those, those are pretty, pretty tall <laughs> and large. But when we get into the food safety aspect, you know, now we're FDA and uh, uh, now you've got two different departments and those kind of things. And I get to work with some growers in the, in the Yuma, Arizona area, and we're familiar with some of the E. coli outbreaks and, and those kind of things that have, that have happened in romaine and other species. 
we've also got uh, severe diseases, uh, soil-borne diseases, as far as uh, lettuce fusarium, and uh, that's just decimating the iceberg crop. So when you can't plant iceberg because of that, you go to romaine. You can't plant romaine because E. coli killed the market. You really get down limited in what you can do as a farmer. And, you know, people only eat so much cabbage, broccoli, and cauliflower. They, they still want to romaine in, in their iceberg. But I just see tremendous opportunities for high-diversity cover crops to be able to restore that soil because right now it's farmed just shy of a hydroponic system. You know, it's, it's tilled 27 times. It's, you know, just hundreds and hundreds of pounds and tons of fertilizer put on and, you know, water added in the way we go. It's really treated like a, um, not, not as a holistic system. You know, it's, it's a place to grow a crop. And if we could change that mindset, one of the keys is getting cover crops integrated in there. And yet you have the residue component with a food safety inspector worried about that. But at the same time, we know from research, if we can improve the diversity of that soil system, we naturally then reduce the incidence of maybe fusariums for sure. And maybe even uh, the, the pathogens, uh, coli, E. coli and such on the, on the plants because we won't get the splash because we're absorbed in the residue. We won't get dirt splash and, and all those kind of things. How in the world do you eat that elephant? <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. a big elephant yeah. to eat. In 30 yeah. seconds. Uh, no. <laughs> 30 seconds or less. So we can, well, we can have cover crops everywhere in Yuma, Salinas, and Santa Maria next year. Okay. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, I'll get right on it. Um, well, I, I would say, first of all, your comment about the silos in USDA. You know, I worked for USDA in, for many years, and so we referred to those silos as cylinders of excellence. <laughs> just 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 joking uh no so um you know this this is a this is a, a big issue an important issue and i tell you um where um something that i've observed uh that i find uh, a bit alarming is uh just kind of a, a lack of recognition that we are working in a, in a natural environment. This is not a, a sterile environment. Uh, you know, our, our, you know, we, we have birds, we have water, we have rain, you know, uh, we have, you know, the deer walking through and, and, uh, and that's really kind of, I don't know, beautiful parts of the earth that I don't think that we're in a position and nor should we want to try to sterilize everything. Um, I think that it becomes a kind of a matter of risk management. Um, you know, there are there are places where there are buffers that are put in between a crop field and a stream to protect the water quality in the stream, but uh, people concerned that the buffer might attract wildlife, so then they go tear out the buffer. And so now, what do you end up with? Poor water quality. Uh, you know, it can happen, and, and so, you know, I think it becomes, uh, we need a, a really good kind of strong risk management, you know, program as part of all of this. I'll say that. Now, that, that's one point. And then the other point is uh, your point about, you know, kind of the opportunity or the ability we may have uh, through focusing on soil health as a, as a way to like control some of these uh, pathogens. And, uh, I, I would say, here, here, you're, you're exactly right. Um, there have been a number of studies that have demonstrated that through particular uh, crops, cover crops, rotation crops, and management practices, uh, we can uh, control a number of these pathogens. Uh, like, for example, this, um, uh, the brassica crops, or the mustards, um, that they exude a substance called um, um, glucosinolate, and glucosinolate breaks down into something called isothiocyanate. You can hear the formative element of the word cyanide in there, isothiocyanate. And so what that does is it's really kind of a natural fumigant. It's a kind of a natural poison uh, from just from coming from the plant that can be used uh, successfully to help control uh, a large percentage of a number of different soil-borne pathogens. And so now when you start to bring some of these, you know, these, these brassicas into your cover crop mixes, for example, 
then now you have uh, an opportunity not just for providing greater biodiversity to feed a more diverse microbial community in the soil uh, that can naturally kind of hold back those pathogens cause they're competing for the same food and stuff like that. But also, you know, you can bring in something like that that even is actually, you know, uh, toxic to particular pathogens. And so this kind of really opens up the door um, to where what the importance is of research. I, I started off talking uh, today about how we're fortunate that there's been enough research conducted that gives us a pretty high level of confidence that we know if we implement these particular practices, we are going to improve soil health and it has these benefits for farmers, have these benefits for the environment. But there's also this other side, you know, this research need that's out there. And then think of what we could do if we really, we really began to understand the chemical signaling between the plant root and the microbial communities and species in the soil. And so that we now can get to a level of understanding of knowing which species in the soil we want to facilitate, which ones we want to promote, and then which plants we should grow because because yeah, because then those would promote those particular microbial communities and species that would suppress those pathogens, that would enhance you know nutrient cycling and carbon sequestration and aggregate stability, so more water comes into the soil instead of runs off, and so so many things like that. So that that's a kind of a a big research uh, topic, uh, research question. Uh, it could be something that. You know that it is something that people are starting to look at, um, but uh, the the door is wide open, and we could just really, really benefit so much more uh, from additional research into that particular area. I would love to see it because, like you say, ster expecting sterility in a natural environment is uh, false expectation. So, how can we how can we create a a, a system that is resilient? and it allows for us to select the species that we want through rotations, cover crops, management, and, and reduce these incidences of, you know, E. coli and, and, and also plant diseases. I mean, the plant disease yeah. aspect is, is much more controllable, but back to the silos, what I was getting at is our current regulations and policies are such that we can't do the necessary management practices to naturally negate these disease and or, um, you know, contamination problems. So, yeah, that's yeah. a, that's a big elephant and, and it needs, needs the research. So, uh, when, when yeah. you're ready to start a study, I've got the places, uh, we have been doing some experimental work with cover crops, uh, transplants, drip tape, and, uh, being able to quantify, um, you know, uh, pathogen load on, on the harvested, if there's any uh, negative E. coli or pathogens on the harvested crop and what's going on in the soil, uh, working with a grower who has interest in that, but it would certainly be an uh -huh. area to, to pour some gasoline on that fire. We're, we're seeing some very positive things. So Yeah, well, I, I think to your point about the USDA, you know, the, kind of the different silos, you know, the different, you know, programs and um, that, you know, would need to be influenced or changed or integrated. Uh, I guess I strongly believe that um, when the people lead, the leaders will follow. And uh, and so when we get that type of research conducted and are demonstrating, you know, that it's beneficial for farmers and, and the public, the consumers of that produce, uh, then I have to think that, uh, that any type of uh, impediment uh, could then be broken down quite easily. That is excellent. I appreciate the, the offer of hope there because mm -hmm. it, it certainly... I mean, boy, everything soil health would, would really just in, in my gut from what I know about, and I know that doesn't qualify for anything, but you just, you just have that feeling that, boy, we could suppress diseases and, and improve food quality and nutrient density just by changing how we manage from a sterile system to a, a complex holistic system. So, Soil Health Institute is also working with that human health, soil health connection. And you guys have done quite a bit of work and actually had a conference, I think, on that, uh, kind of addressing some of those specific issues. Yeah, we, we did. You know, it's interesting. When we started out, you know, we stood up the Institute. I was the first employee in 2016. We started looking at, 
you know, kind of a long list of priorities and opportunities that we wanted to address. When we came to this area of soil health, human health connections, we just kind of looked at each other and thought, wow, you know, we started kind of brainstorming on all those different possibilities. And there are many different possibilities. Uh, just for example, when you improve soil health, you enhance nutrient availability in the soil. You also make the soil easier for the roots to penetrate and move around and to pick up those nutrients and to take up water. And so it just makes sense that we might be able to enhance the nutrient quality, the nutritional quality of the plants, of the produce, the ears of corn, for example, uh, in these healthy soils. And so that's just kind of one of the, you know, kind of many opportunities. And, um, but when we started, you know, looking at all those opportunities, we realized that we, we knew very little about them. And so we could, you know, speculate like I just did, but we really didn't have a lot of research information uh, to fall back on. And so we felt like really our first step ought to be to convene uh, people, not just soil scientists, agronomists uh, together, but to bring in people from the medical uh, profession uh, the nutritionists, dietitians, uh, those types of folks, MDs, and uh, and so we did that. And what was interesting is there were 180 people. We limited in size because we wanted to have effective dialogue, but we had 180 people show up. And what's kind of cool is they were from 120 different organizations, mm. <laughs> and most of them had never been to uh, a meeting together. Most, most everybody was new to everyone else in the room, and uh, so, you know, it was. We explored the medical community perspective on soil, uh, the soil science community perspective, and um, and explore different things like you know, kind of connections on through nutritional aspects and oh, kind of a the holding down, I guess, the uh, kind of the bioavailability of toxins, because many of the medical folks, they looked at soil as a source of contamination. Mm -hmm. uh, that was their perspective on it, uh, contamination pretty much from lead, like from leaded gasoline and smelters and paint and stuff, you know, that settled from the air uh, down into the soil. Sure. And so they, they, they were kind of looking at it from a complete opposite way of, of the the healthy way that I'm, that I look at soil. So it was it was a really eye-opening uh, that we came up uh, after a couple of days with about 10 priorities uh, to address. And uh, so we are a nonprofit, and so uh, we don't have funding for all these things until we're successful at raising funds to address them. And so we have um, started down the road of, uh, of trying to pull out two or three of those 10 priorities and then start to find organizations that may be interested in funding some work in it. And uh, so we're hopeful on one of those right now, but I don't want to jinx myself by talking about it because it hadn't happened yet. Um, but, but then once we, uh, you know, get the funding for it, then that allows us to really kind of staff up and to hire, bring in other partners that have expertise that we don't have. Uh, to work together uh, to start to address those issues. So it's a tremendous opportunity, and uh, we're hopeful to be able to really help, you know, kind of shed some light on those opportunities. Again, because I think that could be so important for providing an additional market driver uh, for the food and the fiber and the fuel, you know, that, that farmers uh, are, are providing um, using these soil health practices and systems. If we can, you know, demonstrate those additional types of invent benefits, in this case, like nutritional benefit in that example in the food, then you have to figure that there are going to be consumers out there that might pay a little bit more for it so it can help become an additional driver for getting more and more of these uh, soil health management systems uh, on, the, on the ground that now, again, brings back those water quality benefits and greenhouse gas emissions reduction benefits stuff that benefits all of society while keeping, you know, farmers uh, employed in, in providing the economic uh, basis that they need to keep farming and ranching. The future does look like a lot more income streams per acre other than the crop grown. 
It's either an income stream from eco in addition to the crop, but ecosystem services, human health services, you know, all, all those types of things by doing it right. Because today, it, doing it wrong is imputing costs to the system. So it's a matter of um, quantifying that and, and rewarding appropriately. Because if, if you hold the carrot out there in front of a farmer and say, hey, uh, here's $60 an acre of uh, ecosystem services and, you know, here's $100 an acre of health services. Um, oh boy, uh, will we scramble to do everything possible to, to hit those targets? And, uh, yeah. you know, and, and, and it's real money. It's not, it's not a handout um, for, for insurance or a crop failure. It's, it's real, you know, we're, we're paying these costs one way or the other. Let's uh, let, let's pay it to a farmer in his soil versus to, you know, stream cleanup or, or cost to hypoxia or, or cost to, you know, cancer or nutrient imbalance and, and all those chronic diseases. So fascinating, fascinating. So you'll have all that research and all those programs uh, available in the next month, right? Yeah, yeah. Like I said, while I go, get right on it. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, I'm glad you're really, uh, I'm really excited that Soil Health Institute led that, that conference and uh, offline we'll have a discussion on suggestions that you would have because we've always tried to include with Aggie Merge, a medical doctor talking about the soil health, human health uh, interconnections. So we were fortunate oh. to have uh, Dr. Daphne Miller speak to us uh, two years ago and yeah. last year we had uh, Dr. Zach Bush speak to us. So um, we've got the, the word on the street right now. We're looking for another medical doctor for this year, but uh, I hope you can help us with that. So, Well, I'll try. Daphne, Daphne was going to be the one that I recommend. So um, I might have to dig a little bit deeper, but I'm sure certainly happy to dig for you. Excellent. Excellent. Kim, you had some additional questions here you wanted to go through. Well, I, I think, you know, we've really covered all the bases, but um, you know, we, t we talked a little bit about, you were just mentioning with the soil health, human health, that you were partnering with people, but could you talk with us just, just to kind of wrap us up a little bit about how, um, with the partners that you work with, I mean, you've got a lot of different folks that are coming together uh, to really, that are outside of uh, that soil health realm that are interested in soil health. Could you talk a little bit about those folks and yeah, like the Walmarts and the General Mills Wrangler, that just seems really far away from soil. How, how did that all emerge and, and why are they doing it? I think that really offers hope for our listeners. Yeah, you know, um, I guess I will start off with one of our first interactions with one of those organizations it was a gentleman named Jerry Lynch, who was the vice president and the chief sustainability officer for General Mills at the time. He's recently retired just a few months ago. But at the time, the, that was his position. And uh, he said that they have recognized at General Mills that soil health is a business imperative. And that really got my attention. Uh, and I thought, okay, it's if not General just, Mills... Just not a shiny little sticker we put on our box or you know, something right. to make us all feel warm and fuzzy. It's a business imperative. That's amazing. That's that is amazing. And then he went on to explain. He said that, you know, he said we're experiencing so many weather extremes from the heavy precip to drought. Um, he said that soil health helps, you know, mitigate that. And that, you know, it, but soil health helps determine, you know, not only the availability of their food that they're growing, like, you know, like their oats, for example, for breakfast cereal, just as an example. But then also it helps determine the price that they have to charge for it, because if they have drought, they don't have, they can't meet the demand. Uh, now also now the price, you know, keeps going up on it. So, you know, out of the field. So then they have the, you know, the price that they, you know, they transfer to the consumers and, and stuff. And so that, that's kind of how a lot of that started uh, was just kind of recognizing um, that from that business perspective from General Mills. And so that was one of our first uh, partners that we worked with uh, on soil health. We're continuing to work with them to this day. And then there are others uh, that are recognizing it. Uh, Cargill, of course, that, you know, they, they do a lot of different things, you know, with animals and corn, soybean and stuff. And, and so they are seeing that um, their farmers are being impacted by the weather 
they are seeing the, the benefits uh, to the soil health practices on things like water quality and on reducing greenhouse gas emissions. And so they are helping us quantify the economic benefit uh, of these soil health practices with uh, many different farmers. Uh, we're going to some of their soybean crush facilities and drawing a 50 mile radius around uh, each of those facilities and then going out and interviewing some farmers, you know, many of them that sell to that facility. And then another that I would uh, highlight is uh, that came to us uh, from Wrangler, Wrangler jeans. Of course, when you think of Wrangler jeans, think of cotton, Wrangler and Lee jeans. And uh, so they, again, are seeing that in order to help their cotton farmers, uh, stay in business, uh, be resilient to these extreme weather events, to be uh, more efficient with their nutrient use, uh, to minimize their impact on the environment, and to have even environmental benefits um, that um, they want to help There's those farmers improve soil health. So we started a education and training program for cotton farmers in North Carolina, Georgia, and Arkansas in 2019 and we're continuing that in those states in 2020 and expanding to Texas, California, and Mississippi. And our, our approach there is to not just parachute in and, and give a training session and then leave, but actually to engage some farmers that are already successfully employing these practices uh, and where we kind of enlist them as mentors to other farmers and also help provide a little bit of support for some of the local technical specialists like extension specialists or conservation districts that now will work with us in providing that localized training, and, but then also will we'll stay in place, of course, and be a resource and work directly with other farmers and help them with expanding adoption of these uh, soil health practices in their cotton rotations. And so it's an extremely exciting program, and so those are kind of three examples um, uh, where these types of organizations, you know, have uh, have come to us and uh, recognize uh, the, the benefits and opportunities to help support uh, the farmers and ranchers. And, and we're just uh, uh, just really honored and quite quite tickled, actually, uh, to be able to to work with them because uh, we have such a we have such a high regard for farmers and ranchers and those that are making their living on the land. So we're all in this together. Uh, as we farmers, are. Sometimes we forget, ultimately, the person who's paying our, our check is the consumer. And as crop consultants, we forget that too. It's not necessarily a farmer paying our check. It's the consumer. And that's what Wrangler, General Mills, and all the other partners have seen is that, hey, there's real questions about cotton sustainability. You know, there's, there's lots of bad things said about cotton. Uh, but you know, here's the reality that we can do cotton better and we and we can do it in a way that is sustainable and, and improves the soil and those kind of things. And Wrangler stepped up to the plate and, and said, hey, we're going to help educate our farmers because we are all in this together. So I think we need to look at it more as a team approach from, from the farmer, uh, you know, through the processor to the consumer and, and look at what does the consumer want. And, um, and when we have that focus, then, then everything aligns and, and works well. So, excellent. Um, I know our, our time's coming to an end here, Kim. Any anything else that you want to? Um... No, I think I'm just excited about the conversation that we've had because what I what I knew when when I asked if you would be uh, interested in doing this podcast is I knew we'd get that full gamut, uh, really kind of tying all of these pieces together. And so I think that's what we've done here today. And I'm excited about that because it helps people to see, um, you know, all the things that are going on and that there's excitement and there's information and there's real research and things going on to really help people make um informed decisions about how to proceed. So I, I thank you very much, Dr. Honeycutt, for taking time to join us today. It was my pleasure entirely. Thank you all so much for having me. Keep up the great work. We thank you for everything that you're doing. Well, thanks. And same to you too. Thank you. What a great discussion with Dr. Honeycutt, looking at not only the future of soil health, but remembering the past and the pioneers who paved the way so many years ago with some of the first no-till fields and research. 
It's so important to see the marked changes and improvements in soil health that have been documented over the decades from these practices. You know, Monty and I were also both struck by the comment that Dr. Honeycutt made when he said he strongly believed that when the people lead, the leaders will follow. And isn't that really what's happening in soil health? People are practicing learning and sharing everything they can as they work to build a systems approach to regenerate our soils. And leaders are listening. It's inspiring to know that farmers are continuing to make radical changes in their management practices. Right now, it goes without saying that there's a lot going on in our world and clearly some uncertainty. But one thing we can be certain of is a growing number of farmers working together with other leaders in agriculture to build soil health. So take care and thanks again for joining us.